Our Old Testament lesson and the text for the sermon today is from Jeremiah chapter 1. Again, give careful attention to God's Word. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the, Lord, word, then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it is facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come, and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands." Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As we look at it now, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might behold its wonders and turn our hearts fully to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> A couple of months ago, we jumped into and looked at Jeremiah chapter 3. 
We saw how through Jeremiah, God was calling the people of Judah to repentance. He was calling them to turn away from their idolatry and turn back to him. Today, we're going to to backtrack and look at chapter 1. And and there we'll see how this, this unsuspecting person named Jeremiah ended up in such a place. And what does that have to do with where you find yourself right now? Imagine being an 18-year-old growing up in the town of Anathoth during the time of Josiah the king. I realize that may be a little difficult to imagine because you weren't back there. You don't know what it was like. So so let's, let's try to flesh that out a little bit. You're an Israelite. It's a few years before 600 B.C. Now, what that means is that it's been almost a thousand years since the defining event of your people. It's been nearly a thousand years since God, with Moses, brought all of the people out of Egypt through all kinds of miraculous events. And he gave your ancestors the law at Mount Sinai. Now, 1,000 years is a long time to be a people to be a nation defined as God's people. Now, now back then, they made their way to the land that God had promised to them. And God, with Joshua and the army of Israel, conquered that land, and Joshua distributed it to the different tribes. Anathoth, now remember, that's your hometown. It It was one of 13 cities given to the descendants of Aaron the priest. See, when land was divided up between the tribes, the priests didn't get any land. Instead, they got these 13 cities. And Anathoth, your city, was just three miles from Jerusalem, where the temple ended up. And in fact, now, if you look uphill to the southwest, you can see the walls of Jerusalem. So you grew up in a city of priests very near the temple. And you're the son of a priest. That means you're a descendant of Aaron, the first priest. You'd be well-schooled in the history of Israel, in the sacrifices and the rituals, and also the law of Israel. At least, you should be well-schooled in it. But it has been almost a thousand years since the law was given at Mount Sinai. And since then, There's been the whole time of the judges. There have been all the kings up until now. Sure, the the law was written down and it was passed down, but a lot of things have happened. About 300 years ago, 10 of the 12 tribes, they left. They went to the north and formed their own nation. They didn't come to God's temple anymore because Jeroboam set up temples and idols there. And about 100 years ago, the Assyrians totally wiped them out. Now, from your perspective, they deserved it. Because they they went there and they worshipped idols instead of the one true God. And they had been fully warned by the prophets, Elijah and Elisha and Hosea, but, but they didn't listen. So they deserved what they got. I mean, after all, everyone knows that here at Jerusalem, 
This is where God's temple is. This is where God dwells with his people. And because of that, everyone knows Jerusalem is safe. The Assyrians or whoever comes, they'll never be able to conquer Jerusalem. This is God's chosen city. Especially now that Josiah is king. When his grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon were reigning, things weren't so good. There was a lot of corruption in their government. And a lot of the priests were involved in it too. But, but three years ago, the high priest found the book of the law in the temple. The law that God gave to Moses. Now, I'm not quite sure why it was lost, but it's been found now. And from that point on, King Josiah has been setting things right. And there have been a lot of things to set right. And that would have been some of the perspective that Jeremiah would have had at that time. And there were a lot of things to set right. If we look at 2 Kings chapter 23, where it describes this, we're able to see what some of those things were. There we see that there were a lot of articles in the temple. Articles that were made for Baal and Asherah, the Canaanite gods. And then there were other articles for all of the Assyrian gods. Those things were in God's temple. And Josiah, he took them all out and he burned them. He removed all the priests that the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense to all of those gods in the temple. Then he tore down the booths of the ritual prostitutes and sodomites that were in the temple. Then he tore down and defiled all of the high places in Judah and even up in Samaria. And he removed those priests. He stopped the people from sacrificing their children and offering them to Molech. He tore down all the altars that the kings, including his grandfather Manasseh, had set up in the temple courts. He tore down the high places that King Solomon had set up for his wives to worship the gods of the Sidonians, Moabites, and Ammonites. All of that wickedness had been going on in Judah for a long time. Some of it all the way back to King Solomon. And King Josiah, he got rid of it all. He also put away the mediums and the necromancers and all the household idols. He got rid of any abomination before God throughout Judah. Then, King Josiah called for the celebration of Passover. And it says that no king had ever done a more glorious Passover. And you can imagine, there were probably some of the people who thought this was all great. But if you were one of those who were participating in any of those wicked things and your idol had been torn down, or if you participated in the corruption and you were benefiting from it financially or in some other way, you wouldn't have liked it so much. But Josiah was the king. And he carried out all of those reforms throughout all of Judah. He made those reforms, but as we saw in chapter 3 a couple of months ago, he wasn't able to reform the hearts of all the people. Many of them were going through the motions, but not with their hearts. 
And that's the backdrop to what happens next. It was in the midst of that, at that time, that God spoke to Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah what he was calling him to be and do. So this unsuspecting, young son of a priest, probably in his upper teens, heard directly from God. And what did God say to him? Well, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now, that says a lot about God and about us. One thing it says about God is that He is sovereign over every individual before they're even conceived. God planned every person before history. And then in history, He forms each one in the womb. And I say every person because this isn't just what happened to Jeremiah. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Before Jeremiah was born, God had already planned for him to be a prophet. He had already planned for Jeremiah to be his prophet at this particular time in history with everything else that was going on. Nothing was an accident. Nothing was a surprise. God didn't look down and say, well, with all this going on, I need a prophet. No, it was all as he ordained it to be. Now, that's a comfort to us. That means God is in control. That means he planned you for this time. He formed you in your mother's womb and determined the day of your birth. And he has every one of your days numbered and planned. You're never going to encounter something that's outside of his control or anything that's a surprise to him. Even the hardest things in life that happen, things that, that we just can't understand, they're ordained by our loving Heavenly Father. And because of that, we can trust him through every one of them. Now, this also speaks to God's call on your life. Since God specifically planned and formed you in all your days, your life isn't up to you. And you're not here for you. As hard as it, it might be to grasp, your life is not your own. It belongs to God who made you and Jesus who bought you with his own blood. And the fantastic thing about that is there's nothing better. He knows and has planned what is best for you now and through eternity. And sometimes with the things that happen, you question that. Because it sure doesn't seem very good. Sometimes it seems absolutely lousy and hard. But your Heavenly Father is good. And He loves you. So, you may just need to get to know him better so that you realize how good and perfect his plan for you really is. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet during a very 
difficult time. Later on, his own people wanted to kill him because they didn't want to hear God's word. But that's what God called Jeremiah to do. And he wasn't just a prophet to Judah. He was also a prophet to the nations. Nations that that didn't know God and wanted to get rid of Judah. Nothing Jeremiah had to do was easy. And Jeremiah wasn't jumping up and down with glee about it either. Look at how he responds in verse 6. Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. Jeremiah had objections. And if he knew everything that was coming, if he knew that he would have a yoke put around his neck, if he knew he would be thrown in prison and into a dungeon with nothing but deep mud in the bottom, and he would be left there to sink in so that he would have to be pulled out by ropes, if he knew all that was coming, he probably would have had a lot more objections. But what is God's answer to the objections that he voiced? But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to, who, to all to whom I send you. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. So Jeremiah, just like us, when we're faced with a daunting, intimidating task, is afraid. How could someone like him, not even yet considered a man, speak to kings? Kings that would rather cut off his head than listen to him. Have you ever noticed that a frequent command spoken by God is, do not be afraid? Now, sometimes we're afraid of of silly things that we just shouldn't be. And we worry about them. There's the common problem, especially for moms today, since we have cell phones. If you call your child and they don't answer, they must have been in a bad car accident or they've been kidnapped or something. God says, don't be afraid, don't be anxious, trust in me. But other times we're afraid because we're confronted by something that really is big and scary. Jeremiah is supposed to go confront with God's word rulers who have already killed other prophets. In fact, one prophet even escaped and went to Egypt to get away. But the king sent men there to catch him and bring him back, and then the king executed him. Even in the face of that, God says to Jeremiah, don't be afraid. And what's the reason God says not to be afraid? In verse 8, for I am with you to deliver you. Now from what we can see from the rest of the book of Jeremiah, there were many times when he was all alone. Even his family turned against him. But he wasn't alone. Because God was with him. And God wasn't just with him passively, sitting there, watching. No, God was with Jeremiah to deliver him. And God did deliver him in every situation. But that doesn't mean Jeremiah was comfortable and happy all the time. Far from it. And as as we look at Scripture, we see that God's presence with his people, it's a theme running throughout Remember that 
Moses didn't want Israel to move one step unless God went with them. And God dwelt among the people. He was with them in the tabernacle and in the temple. Jesus' name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6 says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And in the Great Commission, we hear it every Sunday. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's clear throughout Scripture that God is with His people. Now, it's probably a safe expectation that, unlike Jeremiah, not very many of us will ever be called in to speak to hostile kings of nations and tell them what God's Word says. That's, that's, that probably won't happen. Contrary to our desires, it's also safe to expect that none of us will be called to be comfortable and happy all the time either. As much as we might like it and wish for it, that's not what God calls us to in this life. He uses tests and hard things to cause us to grow, and He accomplishes His purposes with those sorts of things. He does it in ways we don't understand, and in our very finite perspective, those things we often don't like at all. But He's God. He's the sovereign Lord who created everything. He owns it all. And that sovereign Creator is also your loving Heavenly Father. He gave His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for you, and in addition to that, He's united you with that same resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And He works all things, even the things that we see as the worst things, He works them all for your good. What a fantastic place to be. Even if you don't understand what's going on. And even if you don't like how it's working out right now. Because it seems horrible. He's with you. He's with you for your good. He's with you for your maturity. He's with you to deliver you for your eternal presence with Him. And then, what does God do to Jeremiah in verse 9? It says, Then the Lord put out His hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah was called to speak God's word. He didn't think he could do that. But God put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. God gave Jeremiah what he needed. God knows who we are. He knows, he made us, each and every one of us, so he knows our human frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He also knows our strengths, the things that he has given us. He's orchestrated everything all throughout your life to prepare you, to work on you, and he gives you what you need for what He calls you to do. Your job is to be faithful with what He's given you and to be obedient to Him. Well, what else does God say? We'll fill in a little bit more of, of what this means to be a prophet to the nations. Look at verse 10. God says, See, I have this day set you over the nations 
and over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. He set Jeremiah over the nations, over the kingdoms. I mean, does that mean Jeremiah is going to be a king? No. Politically, Jeremiah was never over anyone. But God's word is over everyone. And as God's prophet, Jeremiah will speak God's word, and that word will accomplish exactly what God says. And God uses six verbs to describe what his word will do. Those verbs come from from three major areas of life at the time. The first and the last, root out and plant. They're from agriculture. Pull down and build. They're from construction. And the middle two, destroy and throw down. Those are words from warfare. The first four are all negative and destructive. Every area of life will be touched by destruction. Jeremiah's heaviest task will be to deliver words of rebuke and judgment, tearing down strongholds of of political and, and religious and traditional arrogance. He'll proclaim the uprooting and slaying of his own people who have existed for a thousand years. And he'll proclaim the destruction of all that's most precious to them, including the temple. Now, the last two of those verbs are rebuilding and planting. They offer hope. But Jeremiah and the people that he's speaking to, they won't see those words happen. They're for the future. But after the destruction, after being exiled, those who were judged and the following generations, they'll read these words and they'll see hope. Because as is God's pattern, after catastrophic endings and death come new beginnings and resurrection. So they will have hope for the future. In verse 11, God helps Jeremiah understand this calling. He gives him a couple of pictures. In the first one, God says, Jeremiah, what do you see? Well, I see a branch of an almond tree. You have seen well. For I am ready, or a more literal translation would be, I am watching to perform my word. Now, what does an almond branch have to do with that? Well, Anathoth and the surrounding area of Jerusalem, even today, is a center of growing almonds. And the almond tree is the first to bloom even before leaves appear on the trees. So it's the waker tree. It's the first to awaken and watch over the coming of spring. Just as the almond tree is always there to watch over spring, God will watch over His Word, which He has put in Jeremiah's mouth, to perform it. God gives Jeremiah assurance. And that, He gives him assurance that that what he says will happen. And and Jeremiah is going to need that assurance because he will be saying the same message for 40 years before it happens. 
You see, the Israelites are convinced. They know this is the temple of God. And no one will ever be able to conquer the city with the temple of God in it. That just can't happen. And Jeremiah says, for 40 years, Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed and the people will be killed and dragged away. So repent now. Can you imagine how hard that would be? Just think, you've been saying that unpopular message for 10 years. Now, 10 years is a long time. Nothing has happened. Have you ever fixated on one thing for 10 years, telling people about it, and it's nowhere to be seen? People like that are usually avoided or put away somewhere. But it's not just 10 years. After 20 years, and still nothing has happened, they'd be saying, Jeremiah, stop it already. It's not going to happen. After 30 years, saying the same thing, but it doesn't happen. In the law, what's the difference between a true prophet and a false prophet? Well, if a prophet is a true prophet, what he says happens. But if it doesn't happen, well, that's a false prophet. And a false prophet is to be stoned. How long do you put up with it? After 35 years, doesn't Jeremiah look like a false prophet by now? God gives Jeremiah assurance that everything he says will come true. And just what is this message that Jeremiah proclaims for 40 years? Well, God illustrates that with another picture. Verses 13 through 16 says, And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it's facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come, and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Conquerors would often bring their throne and set it up in the gates of the city they just conquered. They would be able to gloat over this newly conquered people. That's going to happen at Jerusalem. And then continues. Their thrones would be set up against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Because of their wickedness and idolatry, Judah and Jerusalem will be destroyed by some vague enemy in the north. Now, early on in Jeremiah's life, that seemed like a joke. I mean, the Assyrians were the powerhouse nation at the time. They had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, but their empire was crumbling. Egypt seemed like a bigger problem, but they're to the south. It wasn't until later that Babylon became powerful, defeated Assyria and Egypt, and grew into a large empire. But in this prophecy, the identity of the enemy nation really isn't near as important as who is directing it all. It's clear that God himself will call the enemies to come down from the north. Jeremiah's message is that their God 
Their God himself will direct the destruction of the indestructible city and his own temple. Now that sounds even more crazy to the Israelites. And at the same time, there are plenty of other people claiming to be prophets and they're saying the exact opposite of that. Everything's fine. Judah will prosper. For a long time, they looked like they were the ones that were the true prophets. Jeremiah, he looks like he's crazy. Not only that, but he's really annoying. They're afraid he's going to discourage the people from standing strong against the armies that they need to fight against. So Jeremiah spends a lot of time in prisons and in dungeons. Is he happy and comfortable? Now, being faithful to God is often costly. Probably all of us have friends or relatives who, who aren't Christians. Some of us work with those who aren't Christians. And for some, that's very challenging because those non-Christians do their best to make life miserable for you. They mock you for remaining sexually faithful to your spouse. Or if you're not married, they mock you for abstaining from sexual sin. Or their mockery may be because you believe in the Bible. Or you believe in a God that they say doesn't exist. You may even have missed raises or promotions because you refused to fit in and join in with their sin. The culture of our nation is rapidly losing whatever influence from the Bible that it had in the past. And as that happens, it grows increasingly difficult to live and to speak and and to raise your children in a godly way. When your culture is in rebellion against God, and you live in accordance with God's word, then you're in rebellion against your culture. And that can make life difficult. Now, for us, this is kind of a new thing. And it's not that difficult yet. But for many Christians around the world, that's all they've ever known. Prison and even torture and death, those are very common, ever-present realities. To simply be caught with a Bible or to be in a church service, or or to be caught telling someone about Christ, that can mean prison or or execution. In India, a group of Hindus attacked a group of Christians while they were praying, and they beat the Christians with iron rods. One man had severe fractures to his legs, his hands, his body. Surgeons had to amputate one of his legs. That made it so that he was unable to work to be able to provide for his family. Many members of a church in China were arrested and then released when the church was shut down. One of the members was arrested and released multiple times and he lost his job. Well, he did find a second job, but he didn't show up for the second day of work. And he's been missing ever since. We recently heard of the bombings in Sri Lanka over 250 people killed and many churches destroyed. Remaining faithful to God and His Word can be dangerous. Jeremiah's message is very unpopular. But if we skip ahead and we look at Jeremiah 39, verses 1 through 3, we see that his message is fulfilled. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sherezer, Samgar Nebo, Sarsikim, Rabsaris, Nergal Sarezer, Rabmag, and the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon set up their thrones in the gate. And in 2 Kings 25, 8-10, it describes the fate of Jerusalem in the temple. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, the temple. And the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house, he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. So all that Jeremiah said came true. But remember, it didn't happen for 40 years. Jeremiah had to be faithful, being persecuted, and spending much of the time in prison for 40 years. Now at this time in chapter 1, Jeremiah, he doesn't know all that. But that's what's coming. In verse 17, God tells Jeremiah to prepare himself. He's going to proclaim a very unpopular message to a very rebellious people, and he's not to be afraid. He's actually headed for 40 years of hardship, being despised by his own people who try to kill him. And then God tells Jeremiah how God has prepared him. He will stand against kings, princes, priests, and all the people. They're going to fight against him. But in verse 18, God says, He's made Jeremiah a fortified city. And during that time, cities had walls built around them. And it was common for an army to surround a city and lay siege to it. Then they had plenty of time to work at breaking through the walls of the city. But Jeremiah was going to be a city with iron pillars. Now those aren't just freestanding columns of iron. They are iron buttresses to the walls, reinforcing them. And Jeremiah's walls aren't just wood or stone. They're solid bronze. They thought Jerusalem was the impenetrable city. But it turns out Jeremiah is the one who's impenetrable. And look how God ends this section on his call of Jeremiah in verse 19. It says, They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. God returns again to his assurance for Jeremiah. God will be with him to deliver him. Again, we see the theme that God is with his people. So in chapter 1, we see that Jeremiah had a very unique call. He was called to be God's prophet through the last 40 years of Judah's existence as a nation. It was a difficult call. It gave him a very hard life. But along with that call, God prepared Jeremiah. And he gave him what he needed to live out that call. And as he promised, 
God was with Jeremiah throughout. So in spite of the hardship, Jeremiah was faithful to what God called him to do. He carried it out to the end. Now we often relate Jeremiah's call to our own vocational calls. And when we ask, well, does God call me to be a carpenter, a farmer, an engineer, a stay-at-home mom, or, or maybe to be a missionary in another country? Well, that's good and wise to seek direction in those things. But we need to think about an even more fundamental call that God has given to every one of us. It's something that the people of Judah forgot. And it's what Jeremiah was trying to get them to come back to. They were called to be God's people. We already saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that God chose each one of us before the foundation of the world. And in that choosing, he predestined us as his children. We are his. We're called by his name. And with that... We have tremendous blessings, forgiveness, and eternal life. But we can't stop there with what we get. That's like what the Israelites did. They thought, oh, they were chosen, so they have privileges. And that was the end of it. But being one of God's people changes everything. Remember, you're not your own. Later on in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul follows with, I therefore beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There are expectations and requirements with God's call. And how are we to walk? Paul continues, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to look and act like the one people of the one true God. By our lives and our interactions with one another, we are to testify to the fact that we are the people of God and Jesus is His Son, our Savior. God has sovereignly chosen and called you to be His before the world was made. No matter how hard it may be, no matter what comes up, He has prepared you. And He's constantly working on you for that call. He gives you all that you need. And He's actively with you every moment of every day. You're not doing it on your own. His Holy Spirit is in you, strengthening you, encouraging you, and making you holy and blameless before God. So, with faith, with humility, let's encourage one another to faithfully live out the call that God has given us to be His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for making us Yours. Thank You for putting Your name upon us and for giving us Your Holy Spirit so that you are with us always. Strengthen us to resist sin and temptation and give us the love and unity that clearly says Jesus is your Son 
And through the grace given to us in Christ, strengthen us to walk worthy of the calling you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.